Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. And this is Eric. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of reaching into your pocket and pulling out the most awesome game you've ever seen for your players. We are here this week to talk about super wealthy characters and how they change the game. Now, we have a guest host this week. Trav, you've met this guy before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we bumped into each other a few times. Folks, our guest tonight, he is one of my playtesters for Bureau 13D20. He invented the Cabal of Families that's in Bureau 13D20. He role-played one of those family members for the playtest session. He's also in my Fringeworthy D20 game, as well as my co-host on my other show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Eric, the enabler, Spar. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> it's all about having fun, and it's all about having fun with friends. Well, Eric, tonight we're talking about super wealthy characters. Since you did a whole lot of stuff about some very, very wealthy families, that you're probably a real good expert on talking about this. When we talk about super wealthy, what is it we're talking about? I like to think of it as wealth beyond the money, where it's no longer about the paycheck, it's no longer about whether or not you have the basic equipment, it's not whether about you can get in the door. You've gone beyond that initial stuff. You're into what money does for you, rather than simply how many zeros does it take. I think that the best example of that is Sir Richard Branson, He can go pretty much anywhere he wants. He can do pretty much what he wants. He can make sure that what he does gets done the right way, at least as far as he's concerned. That is what I would consider to be a good starting point for that. Because regardless of your game system, that kind of mindset will help determine how you approach that character or that setting. Money, after a while, is just... Money. It's just stuff. It weighs you down, yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you talk about, say, Bureau 13, the money is not about your day-to-day life because, congratulations, your day-to-day life is the Bureau. It's now about what that lets you accomplish in the name of your job. So if you need to get into the party to, uh, you know, into the fancy ball you probably already have an invite. If you need to travel to the exclusive country club, odds are you're already a member. Little things like that. If you talk about Fringeworthy, well, on the paths, you're the equal to every member of your team. But when you get back to Hatsumi, you're the one with the private room, with the comfortable settings, and who's actually eating decent food. 
whereas everyone else is relying on stuff that's been in the freezer for the last six months. Which means they walk outside and get it out of the snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and regardless of how you approach it from the game standpoint, you know, what the individual mechanic or individual name of the game is, is when you're approaching super wealth, it usually brings out the awesome, if I remember the uh, euphemisms here, for playing it not as zeros on your sheet, but as an attitude, a birthright. I can do this. Not I can buy it. Heck, I already own it. It just doesn't know that yet. When you consider about whether or not you can go places, well, if you're the ultra-rich guy, you have an excuse to go there. Hey, my excuse is I'm interested in a business venture over there, or I'm a member of this club, and these people are all working for me. Meanwhile, if it's Bureau 13, the other people who are your, quote, servants are actually the actual people who are going to go in and see what kind of trouble they can find. And if you're uh, fringeworthy, heck, maybe you're clearing out a political issue from some recalcitrant politician who wants to cut funding to the program or put some kind of limiters on the program. It's not about the money. It's about what you can do. You're not limited. It's no limits. It's entitlement almost without being presumptuous. We have this character who can do pretty much whatever he wants to as long as it's not directly opposing the goals of the organization he's with. The organization or the other party members, yes. Well, there's a lot of things you could do to oppose the other party members. You don't even have to be wealthy to do that. It happens in my campaigns all the time, yeah. <laughs> when I was first thinking about this, what I kept bumping into my head was a lot of Japanese animation that I've seen where you have this environment in which everybody's kind of equal, like high school, and then you've got this guy, and he is rich as Croesus. I mean, his family owns, like, one of the islands of Japan chain. Anytime he wants to do something, he gets away with whatever he wants, and that's a good and a bad thing. So how potentially disruptive to uh, the game is this character? As much or as little as the GM is going to let you is the fast answer. The slow answer is if the GM is the kind of guy who wants to sit back and see what kind of trouble you can get yourself into, being the ultra-rich guy is the guy at the front of the roller coaster on his way to trouble because there's nothing that can stop him as far as excuses go. Because if he personally doesn't have the ability to do it, well... He can afford to hire, as it were, the other student or the other employee who actually has the necessary skill set. And if the dean is mad with him, well, hey, congratulations, the library just got a new wing. I've just endowed a new chair. <laughs> yes. So, congratulations. If you're looking for conflict is good, i.e., you know, it's a plot complication that will further the enjoyment for everyone... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can lead to a lot of conflict and a lot of problems. But at the same time, the ultra-rich guy can also be the guy who sees a slow point in the game and 
because he has a wild hair up his um, idea spots. Yeah. He decides to go, we're going to Florida. And you're going, they haven't discovered Florida yet. Well, that's why we're going. And next thing you know, you're in Florida. Jim could wait, hand wave to flash to Florida. And then the game starts with you trying to find a way back. I feel that is the perfect role for the ultra-rich guy. Not for how to start the game. Assume that the ultra-rich guy, if it's important to the story arc, he's there. And if you haven't thought of one, just listen to some of the crazy ideas that he's got. And congratulations, well, you're there. Now what are you doing? You'll usually watch the rest of the party do a, a gigantic facepalm or a reach to slap the other guy. But it does keep the game going. Eventually, the game of interdimensional adventure from Tri-Tag Games. Antarctica 2010. A Japanese research team finds a portal to alien and alternative Earths. Only one person in 100,000 has the special ability that lets them use the portal and travel the pathways to infinity. You are this person. You are... The Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is the first RPG of interdimensional adventure across millions of alternative Earths. Fringeworthy is available at TriTech Games at www.tritechgames.com slash fringe.htm. A million million worlds await you. Go visit them. The uh, super rich guy isn't always going to be the alpha male in the group. In the X-Men, Warren Worthington III, he bankrolls all the equipment for the X-Men. But when you look at him as a character, he's pretty retiring. I mean, he's gorgeous, but he's not the guy who's getting everybody into trouble or sending them off on missions. He's just the guy who's making sure that it all happens and they all get to come back because he's giving them the best stuff. He has a reason why he's not causing trouble in the X-Men. He's too busy having a social life because he is good-looking and stinking rich. And also a decent guy to be around. That ties into the whole concept of self-determination. It's how much are you going to be who you are, and for that matter, what kind of role you're going to put yourself in the party. If you have a party filled with people who all want to be the alpha, you can afford to sit back and when the party hits a stall point, you can be the little prod. If the party's just going way off the deep end, you can suddenly say, and the money stops. Suddenly you don't have bus fare. You're not stopping the alpha from doing what he's going to do, because if he's truly an alpha, he can be dirt broke and uh, in a car with no gasoline, and he'll still find a way to go wherever the heck he wants to go or do whatever the heck he wants to do. Yeah. It's just how the rest of the party then has to cope with him or her. When I run uh, games, uh, cons for uh, Fringeworthy, uh, Savage Worlds, one of the pre-gen characters I have is a billionaire Chinese uh, uh, entrepreneur. He made his money in, in setting up shops and selling gadgets and so forth. He's worth billions of dollars. And he's Fringeworthy. And he was pretty much told by the Chinese government, you will go to Hatsumi, you will train, you will go to Alice Springs and train Otherwise, we're going to cancel all your contracts. We're going to basically put throw you in jail. So he's there under duress. But he's also the reason why 
there's a video conference meeting room on Hatsumi. There's a reason why you have real-time communications with the rest of the world at Hatsumi. Because, by God, I'm going to be an idit, but I'm going to make sure I can run my business while I'm down here. I would picture someone like that as the perfect example of the ultra-rich guy, because not only would he probably be comfortable at Hatsumi, he'd probably have two or three other worlds that he'd be slowly funneling stuff to. When he's at, say, Rome, he's got businesses going. When he's at Erder, he's actually got something decent to eat and drink, up to 1870s food or whatever level they're at. Now, the problem is that he's been played twice by two different people, one guy sort of got him and played him like, he, okay, I'm rich. At least I'll contribute and I will see what kind of business deals I can set up. The other guy's going, he's rich. I don't know what to do with him. And he was sulking most of the game. I have like six characters and I only had four people playing. He had an option to play a different character. He, he decided to play the rich guy and then sulk because the rich guy wasn't a super fighter or something like that. It's, he's geared toward a different area. In fact, I kept trying to throw him into situations where he could use the rich guy's persuasion skills and streetwise and all this good stuff to deal with the Romans. He wasn't going to do it. Nah, not me. I can appreciate that because that ties into the idea of motivation and success. Mm -hmm. If you're the motivated guy, you're not worried about whether or not you're as good as your father or as good as the guy next to you. You have nothing to prove. The only person who might ha you might have to prove something to is yourself. And that's just to say I'm as, at least as good as I was yesterday, if not better. Also, with the concept of success, well, even the best people have setbacks. Now, if you're just going to be the kind of guy who's like, I can't do anything today and not try anything, well, I mean, from a role-playing perspective, that's not terribly fun. And from a real-life perspective, well, that's even less fun. I prefer to think of... The truly wealthy person should be mm -hmm. approaching this from the standpoint of it's not the appearance of success, it's the attitude of success. I may yeah. have 17 cents to my name, but I'm looking the best that I can look, I have the best attitude that I can have, and I am prepared for the next situation that walks through the door. I don't care if it's a business proposition or the uh, woman who will someday be my wife. I'm going to be the best I can be. And that goes from, it goes past the money. It goes to the attitude. It goes to the sense of, of like I was saying, entitlement without presumption. When I did the character history for him, his father's rich, but I'm not going to give you one red yen or one red yuan until you can prove yourself. So he is literally a, a self-made man. He basically, he started his own business and became wealthy on his own. But that doesn't have to be that way, John. You're proposing that the entrepreneur rich guy is the only version to play. I don't see it that way. Most of the rich people in the world got their money the old-fashioned way. They inherited it. Well, what I was seeing was that from the perspective of what I consider to be the true joy of it is not I'm going to sit by the pool. I'm just going to wait till the mailman brings the check. If you have that kind of attitude... What's your motivation for adventuring in the first place? If, however, you're the kind of person who's, let's see what's behind the door. Well, whether that's spawned from the self-made man or the um, dilettante, who just happens to be a little bit of an eager beaver, congratulations, you've got someone who's a, a fun person to play. He's, 
He's going to bring the awesome. He's going to contribute. He's going to do what it takes for him to fulfill his sense of self. If he's out it for a vicarious thrill, then he's going to do the things that are going to give him that right kind of vicarious thrill. If he's doing it in the name of, of the next great business venture, then he's going to go out with that kind of mindset. Or he or she is out to pick up the appropriate um, type that he's interested in as far as uh, dating or whatever goes. Then you know he or she, that's what they're going to go do. And if you're running a game, whatever game you're running, well, either your character is the guy who's not there, he or she is too busy out at the pool or out at the club, well, unless that's where the games are happening, well, congratulations, that's just grab another character. If, however, you're playing someone who's got an interest and the focus can be, you know, not necessarily the focus of the entire game, but the focus of the character can be on that interest, whether it's money, power, people, knowledge. And if you have money to back that up, well, not only do you have someone who's interesting to play, but you have someone who has the ability to take maybe an otherwise lackluster character as far as the raw numbers on the sheet um, go and turn them into someone spectacular. Yes, I am doing the little slow jazz hands expanding <laughs> with the spectacular. That's why I gave him the background I gave him because I realized if this made him an inherited wealthy uh, person, he wouldn't be as interesting to play as a person who was more or less forced to, for, you know, he was given a thousand yuan to start a business and he became a millionaire within a short period of time. And this is during the, this is in China too, where it's not given you'll become a millionaire, but he somehow did it. And then he's got help from his father after that, and he became a billionaire. That is a classic example, though. It's someone who has a reason to be who he is, mm-hmm. a reason to be in the party, and at the same time, a reason why they don't have to be at conflict with each other. You know, that the reason for who he is and the reason why he's in the party don't have to, to be at odds with each other in a fringeworthy game. There are so many opportunities for someone like that to really come out and contribute to the game. If you're a GM and you're trying to bring the awesome, the last thing you want to feel like is just a TV set sitting there to entertain people. You want to try and get people to realize that they Mm. can get involved in the game. And I found that the ultra-rich guy is usually the fast-track, you know, one person in the party, you know, putting the little match under the rest of the party. Because even if they're not the best person in the party, hey, but I can do this. Can you? It does kind of get into that ultra-rich mindset of one-upsmanship. Because if you've got other people at the table, well, I know I can do X better than him, and they're doing this now, so I'm going to go off and do this now. Or when the party goes into this next thing, I'm going to show them I can be just as great, just as awesome, just as spectacular. And even if it's not promoting unity in the party, it's Mm -hmm. promoting action in the party, where the GM is less of a push and more of just like a gentle guide to keep things rolling and to keep the game from getting slow, boring. 
You have joined the most secret government agency that you have never heard of. The 13th Bureau of Justice, otherwise known as Bureau 13. You are a government agent charged with the duty of disposing of the greatest unnatural threats to the people and the, and the economy of the United States and Canada. You will work under the knowledge that you are funded by an organization so secret, even the highest government officials do not know of your existence. Welcome to the elite band of people who wander the dark streets of the night, ever searching for the horrors that should not exist in this modern age. You are a special agent, stalking the night fantastic. Bureau 13 is a Gen Con award-winning RPG of modern horror and paranormal adventure. It's available from Tritech Games at TritechGames.com in both the original editions and in the D20 edition, with a new Savage Worlds edition coming soon. Remember that wherever the supernatural waits, good and evil, the agents of Bureau 13 will be there. But the evil is growing. A superish character can be an instigator, okay, but he can also be an enabler, and that's where you say you can keep it going. Yes. When someone says, hey, we, we want to do this, but we can't because of this obstacle, that gives him an opportunity to use his resources to make that obstacle go away. Yes. I took it from a couple of movies where the people themselves weren't necessarily rich, but they had the right kind of foreplanning and uh, preparedness to have the stuff that, you know, the right tool for the right job. If I'm allowed to quote Tron, where he goes up to the science lab and pulls out the ID card for the exact kind of ID card that will open up the door, and no one was ever thinking they were going to have to use that door. He pulls it out, opens it up, and the other guy goes, this guy's like Santa Claus. That was the germination for the idea of just how kind of you know, wealth it is. It's not whether or not I can give the party things, toys, whatever, mm-hmm. but just because I'm there, they can benefit from these wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Or as Joker would say, where does he get such wonderful toys? Look at this from the point of view from the different game systems. Now, the reason I brought this up, because the character I was talking about is a, is a fringe-worthy character. The comment I got from the guy who was actually sulking and he was he couldn't figure out what to do with his character was, well, he's rich. That's his edge. He's filthy rich. And what else can I do with him? I mean, he doesn't. he's not a very good shot, but he's good at talking to people. He's good at social. And I tend to be more social in my games than shoot-em-ups. He just couldn't figure out what to do with him, I guess. Some people can play social characters. Some people look for shoot-em-up characters. And he, I don't know why he picked a, a social character over a shoot-em-up character. In this case, but that does be a question though: is if you're filthy rich, and that, that's either in D twenty or in or in Savage Worlds, you're filthy rich. What does that really mean in terms of what can I do when I'm on the fringe pass? Does that give me any real benefit other than maybe equipment? I can get better equipment than the other people can. By the way, that's excellent. You have that kind of attitude, that kind of bearing. Whether you actually have that kind of money or you're the excellent master of dissimulation. Hey, congratulations, you're on a Victorian Earth. You know, maybe Teus, maybe not. But you're on a Victorian Earth. If you have the right attitude and the right bearing and you know what money means at that obscene level, you'd be surprised how easily you can go places and do things and get things without spending a dime. You may not have a single coin of the realm, but 
you can get into the fine restaurant, you can get into the expensive hotel, and you can have someone else cover the bill for you because they realize, oh, he just doesn't have his wallet with him today. When I use the Second World Sourcebook for D20, they have the influence system and a table where you can convert basically a thousand gold pieces of wealth to one influence point. And you can use those influence points to buy favors, get your way into organizations and positions which allow you more stuff. And they describe influence both as who you know and how much they owe you, and also some people might call the trinkets. The signed baseball from a legendary player, the autographed pen, Muhammad Ali's first set of boxing gloves um, that he went to the Olympics with. Stuff like that, where it's so anywhere you go, you've got something if you've got influence. What I meant was that with the mechanic of influence, yes, if you have a lot of wealth and you transfer some of that wealth to influence, you have points where you can get in any door. And usually for getting these favors, you have certain skills you have to roll on, like diplomacy, gather information, bluff. If you are somebody of wealth, I mean, we're talking either old school money or a self-made man. In order to have gotten and have gotten that wealth, you're going to need those skills as a matter of business or as of etiquette. Or you're going even, to need them. If you yourself are not the self-made person and, and you are not the highly motivated person, just by the fact that you go to dinner every Thursday night with mother, father, and your 37 closest family members, you're going to learn these skills. You're going to acquire these connections, and you're going to know how you're supposed to act and whom, you're suppo- whom you can lord it over and whom you bend a knee to. You're going to end up building up bluff, diplomacy, gather information, sense motive. And so when those skills come into play, you're able to spend these influence points, and therefore, because you're rich, you can do it a lot and throw these this influence around and you can get you and your friends in the door to this place and to meet that person and to get that favor. Okay, who's springing Billy from jail today? <laughs> I don't see Bill Gates having the social skills, yet he's worth billions of dollars. Skill set that for his clique, as it were, for yeah. his type of rich circle... He's got the right skill sets. He's got, instead of the high society, high business skills, he's got the meat and potatoes business skills and the knowledge skills. He wouldn't have so much knowledge pop culture and knowledge, you know, this. He'd have knowledge technology, knowledge business. And let's face it, if you're of the right kind of mindset, Bill Gates walks in the door and he wants to talk to you, you will make time to talk to him. Yeah. And if that means that to do that, you've got to let these six other people pass you whom are actually trying to sneak into your office to find incriminating evidence, oops, it's Bill Gates, and I'm a tech nerd or a tech geek or however terminology you're going to use. Yeah. I want to know this stuff. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to listen to the words coming out of this brilliant man whom... I admire, and it can also be the high, you've got the ultra-rich guy who's a former professional athlete, like Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. who think of all the stuff that he could get away with, 
or think of the kind of doors he could open. doesn't care how you got the money. It's if you've got the right skill sets, if you've got the right connections, yeah. you can still get in anywhere you want. We were talking about refrigerator, but I'm now thinking about Bureau 13, and you have a Bill Gates on a team. Well, you actually have a problem because one in Fringeworthy is okay to be well known. You got Bill Gates on your on your bureau team. You don't make him disappear. You don't make him go away. He's Bill Gates. He doesn't go away. The perfect guy on your team. Bill Gates is interested in starting a charity in your small community. Are you going to say no? <laughs> yeah. Well, depends. It, it depends. Bill you know. crew, i.e. the rest of the party, are the ones actually investigating the situation, the ones actually get finding the problems, while Bill Gates is sitting there going, Hi, look at me. No, don't look at the party looking in the uh, spooky church. Look at me over here <laughs> cutting the ribbon. the man behind the curtain. Yeah. And th at that point, the ultra-rich guy becomes, in a bureau game, the perfect face man for the party. He can be the public figure who, hi, I'm starting a business. Hi, I'm starting a charity. Hi, I'm opening a sports center for underprivileged youth. Hi, I'm opening an art gallery. How we can get into an otherwise closed community. That's how we can actually get meetings with people without attracting attention. Because the number one attention magnet is in the other end of the room, or preferably the other end of town. No one's looking at you. They're looking at him. Okay, we have a haunted house. Yeah, you don't want Bill Gates showing up in the haunted house. Bill Gates case. shows up with some <laughs> friends, and he actually does the classic uh, disinformation. We're going to prove this house isn't haunted. You know, to prove that, we've asked our good friend, Mr. Gates, to spend the night here. We're going to film him, kind of like a reality show, and we're trying to creep Mr. Gates out. You know, we're going to make him think this is a haunted house. Well, while you're doing the filming of this is a haunted house, no, not really, the bureau team can actually be in there and actually resolving the haunted house issues. Thus, if anyone else comes by, well, hey, they're filming this reality show, not really a haunted house. Rex, we're being attacked. Don't you worry, Dolores. Old Rex will dodge your sky pirates. El Tarib, I knew I smelled something foul when I passed by Catawonga. So, Rex, what are we going to do? Well, my dear, you're going to man that 50 cal on the roof to it. Me? I'm going to do some fancy flying. Man up, Tarib! Rick's Havoc is coming through! Explore the world of the hard-wired hinterland. Visit the lands of New Akron, almost Canada, and New Old New York. Deal with Sky Pirates and the natives of Etawanga. It's your new home and your new life. Make of it what you will. The Hardwire Hinterland is a systemless role-playing campaign supplement from Tritech Games. You can use this supplement with any role-playing game rules that you like. 
Available as a PDF from TritechGames.com. That's TritechGames.com. Come to the Hardwire Hinterlands and let your imagination soar! Yeah, well, the first thing you turns my stomach. Hasty lumbagos, Tareeb. Rex, shut up and keep flying. Don't worry, Dolores. I'll keep them flying. Over the hardwired hinterland. Though I'm thinking of some of the adventures in the, the published adventures, when they start getting weird, they get weird fast. Eric, eventually this public persona you're talking about is going to become a disaster for that particular character. Because, yes, when you're running into these simple little low-level things, that's one thing. But when you start coming against powerful entities like the Brotherhood of Darkness, the last thing you want is for them to know your address. The last thing you want is for them to get their hands on your hair samples and your fingernail clippings. Your kids. But you're Bill Gates. You're not the guy actually putting the elder evil to sleep. But they can put two and two together. You're the poor schmuck they suckered into getting there. I agree, Eric. That'll work a few times. But eventually, this ploy is going to run out of steam. I mean, Matthias Bolt, who's also at least multimillionaire, can put two and two together and figure out that Bill Gates' part works for the Bureau. And he knows where Bill Gates lives. This works only so far as if you're in the right campaign environment. If yeah. all you're doing is hunting down the great elder evils or going against situations where you're not always worried about the innocent bystander realizing what's going on. And that was how I was using the ultra-rich guy to keep the, the rest of the world from knowing. So the ultra-rich guy has a better use in those kinds of campaigns in the, oh, what's the term? Disinformation. Yeah, disinformation or guys who clean up the mess afterward. So I'm going to play Bill Gates or a Bill Gates-like character. Do I actually ever get involved with, with the actual investigation? Do I spend half the time ordering pizza and checking out the refrigerator? Well, the team goes and does the actual investigation because I'm over here someplace else being the patsy. I see where you're going with this. That depends if your primary role is the disinformation guy or you're the ultra-rich guy, but you still want to get involved in that sort of stuff. You know, you're still yeah. getting into the meat and potatoes of the game. Yeah. Well, if you're the ultra-rich guy who gets into the meat and potatoes of the game, then your probable emphasis is not on the little quiet team who goes in with the minimum of stuff. You're the team that's going in with the best equipment, with the best XYZ, and at that point, your advantage of stealth is not the fact that you're Bill Gates trying not to be Bill Gates. It's the fact that you are boom, done, and out of there before anyone even knows you've arrived. I mean, because you have the moxie and the money and the resources to have the fast vehicles, the right kind of equipment, the right kind of weaponry, or the uh, right kind of uh, team i.e. the wizard or the cleric or whatever who can put it to sleep or cover it up and then be out of there before they realize that Bill Gates was just in town. Yeah, my whole thing with having the ultra-rich famous character in a combat-type situation, you're not going to want to play the guy 
that is going to be Mr. Mamby Pamby and all he does is fund the team or all he does is the face man. However, the team is going to make sure you're on this team. You're going to know how to handle a gun. You're going to know how to do this. And he can just chalk it up to, oh, I target shoot, or I went on a big game safari in Africa, so I learned how to handle a firearm. I kickbox five times a week and all this. So he knows how to handle himself. But we're making one assumption about Rich that automatically equates fame. Because another type of rich guy is the guy who's rich and only other rich people know who this person is. It's one thing mm-hmm. to be Bill Gates or Donald Trump. It's another thing to be a level businessman who he doesn't even show up on a Google search because his name disappears amidst a pile of uh, dummy corporations. Yeah. But when it comes right down to whether or not he can afford his uh, rowboat is actually a 750-foot yacht. You know, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Actually, I'm thinking of, of as a name for the past, Ed Mankashogi was one of those guys. You know, the only reason why I ever knew about him because he, he finally got rich enough that he, he, he hit the Forbes list. You know, but other than that, he used to be, he, he, his his stick was being the, the go-between other rich people, which is how he made his money. When I played my ultra-rich character, it was not about being the one the world knew. It mm-hmm. was about being the guy who had the right equipment, as comfortable as necessary for the situation, but when a door needed to be opened, and we're not talking with C4 here, (laughs) hi, let me call my friend Don, old Trump, or whatever, and suddenly you're in the room. (laughs) The phone at that point replaces the C4, because you're still there, and... At that point, you're not doing it for your, to have your face there, to have mm-hmm. be the famous guy. It's you're the guy who walks in the door, and when the other party, you know, when the party is doing these other things, being the, the great investigators, getting their face time in the game, which is important for everyone, because if you don't, you feel like a wallflower, and mm-hmm. then, you, you know, we're here to have fun. So yeah. as other people are getting their face time in, when the time comes... And suddenly, we don't have what we need. Well, if you're playing Bureau 13, it becomes an issue of, well, we can hope we can call and get a delivery in a reasonable frame of time. Or we can turn and look at our ultra-rich guy who's ordering the airdrop now. Though, I think the Bureau would turn around and say, okay, you're doing an airdrop, but now you got a paper trail that could be traced back to your team and potentially back to the Bureau are you sure it's secure? No one knows knows about it. You know, if it's not going to bureau. If it's not going to bureau channels, you got a paper trail. If the only paper trail is your own business, and mm-hmm. you have a reputation within your own business of dropping, oh, say, five hundred pounds of milk bones um, into the uh, neighbor's yard to keep his dogs from barking at three o'clock in the morning, you're a little eccentric. Yeah, but. As long as nothing was damaged and the dogs are quiet at night, heck, maybe the entire neighborhood says thank you every once in a while. I'm also thinking of the fish out of water scenarios. You're in Cornshuck, Kansas, and no one there is impressed by you got a billion dollars. And you're dealing with a sentient corn invasion. Those are fun, too, because those fish out of water games are fantastic (laughs) as you're now sitting there going, am I supposed to kill this corn? Pinkies up. Those kinds of games are great. 
Other kinds of games can be rewarding. It frequently boils down to whether or not you have the right fit for Mm -hmm. the game of the night. So much more fun from my perspective to be the rich guy because it's easier to tailor yourself. Because when you're the rich guy who's not trying to be publicly the rich guy, but who's like the quiet rich guy, he probably has a secondary or tertiary shtick. And therefore, it's what that that other shtick is that they can develop for the times when being rich doesn't cut it. My character in the uh, Bureau test game, he was so rich that he almost didn't know what to do with all of his money. He's being shown around a 30-story skyscraper. Oh, this is a lovely building. Does it come in blue? The world just thinks he's an unimportant, you know, he's not going to inherit the great family wealth. Yeah, he's going to have some money. He's going to be comfortable the rest of his life unless he's really incompetent. But odds are he's not going to be anyone great. He's not going to be anyone important. He's not going to be anyone to watch. And using that as the whole basis for saying you're the person that you're gambling everyone else is going to underestimate. Now watch me shine. Dot, dot, dot. When you see a game going and you have the opportunity to throw that curveball and watch the game suddenly do a little hiccup as everyone is too busy either laughing or gaping. You know, when you have the gun bunny being the great gun bunny who looks around and actually manages to say something appropriate that doesn't involve anything to do with guns, yeah, that can be a great game-stopping, game-enjoying moment, but you also have the thing where, you know, someone else can do that, you know, for whatever dichotomy that you want to have with your character. When you're the ultra-rich character and you don't want to be the big famous guy, mm-hmm. having that dichotomy built into the character mm-hmm. actually lends that self to that flavor, that glory of it. It's all about being awesome, and if you already mm-hmm. approach the game with the character thinking to himself, I am that awesome, and watch me be that awesome at everything I do, when he fails can be just as amusing as when seats. I have the image in my head of Jack Black doing uh, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> the thing is, we've had adventures with the character's last name is Price. So when we, we say Price, we're referring to this ultra-rich character play. We had scenarios where Price was out of his league. And the whole thing with the stun gun paintball. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. Well, actually, it, it wasn't just, a stun gun paintball. It was or paintballs, um, medica- medicated pa- paintballs with skin contact anesthesia. Congratulations, you'd go numb and you'd probably go unconscious. Oh, I'll, I'll do the, the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> Tried it out on the strongest member while he's there getting a snack. And they're just pink, pink, pink. And, and of course, the fort save is too high, so it's not working. Basically chasing... Price and the, the other scientist played by my other co-host, Sven. And, well, Price got a face full of pain. So he's there hiding in the broom closet, and he has, a, like, a healing patch, slaps it on his face, Woo! you know, screams really loud. And, of course, all of us at the table are just losing it because here it is, the ultra-rich guy, the guy who, you know, his cufflinks are worth more than, you know... The building cuff- they're in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and... They're screaming like a little woman because, you know, he, he just got his face bubbled in by the very strong team member they were trying to use as a test dummy. But had it worked, it would have been just as funny the other way. Well, yeah. <laughs> Until he woke. Yeah.
We've talked about how all the wonderful things that a super rich guy can bring to the table. But a lot of times you need to rein that super rich guy in. What can we use to rein in that kind of character? Okay. What are what are things that limit him? Okay, first off, if the GM feels that the character is just getting away with a little too much, wants to bring him back a little bit, you can always bring in the outside obligations that that kind of wealth, that kind of power come with. Your family obligations, your business obligations, congratulations, your parents are talking, mar- you know, who do you want to marry today? And some people would actually be playing it as your character wants to go off on the next monster hunt because they're running from mom and dad because they're trying to set them up with Sally Mick, disgustingly rich, who is about as interesting as a turnip. My rich Chinese fringery character, his business is suddenly starts taking a dip because there's a rival, and because he's in eye debt, he's torn between saving young sabbaticals he can deal with it or deal with it while still being on the team. Yes, and all of those outside obligations that being that rich, that powerful, I mean, you can introduce the little mundane things that to average people wouldn't seem that oppressive. When you're that rich, and you know, if especially if mom and dad still hold the purse strings a little bit, if you make seventeen ninety five an hour, or even seven ninety five an hour, mom and dad withholding a week's allowance not terribly frightening. It only gets bad if they hold it for a while. When you make that much a second, mom and dad holding a week's allowance is a bit intimidating. And also, congratulations. Your character now has to worry about, are their businesses failing? Are other family members getting ahead in the family's hierarchy because you're off busy gallivanting with your friends? Are you now going to have to do some damage control back home in whatever way necessary? That can actually lead to some very entertaining game sessions where, congratulations, you have the rest of the party being just as out of place as the rich guy was in the previous games. Mm-hmm. Whereas now they're like sitting here trying to figure out which of the 19 forks at the table to use for this dish. What the uh, appropriate etiquette is before you punch someone in the nose. You're the rich, fringe-worthy person. You can't go on sabbatical. You have to go on the mission. Your character should be worrying about what's happening back home where you're gone for a week or two weeks or maybe even longer depending on what, where, where you're going. You know things are fine now, but you also know that you're going on a four-month mission. Can my company survive without me going through the paperwork uh, on a weekly basis? If you're running your business that close, I'd say it almost deserves to collapse. (laughs) (laughs) If it can't survive you going on vacation for four months, you're probably too close or you don't trust anyone in your business to run it. I like to say that I can use that frame as someone who's relatively um, well-adjusted because I know people who can't sleep at night without occasionally checking uh, records or whatever at their office. You know, they have to know what's going on that day, even on, like, Saturday nights. Sometimes there are people who are almost obsessive about the minutia of life rather than of life itself. And when you're ultra-rich, those obsessions can go in new and interesting directions that the party has to deal with. 
Conflict is good. Yeah. yeah, and if you're a self-made billionaire, you got there because you worried about the, you sweated the big details as well as the small details. Yes, exactly. <sighs> okay, so you have this guy, and he has to hand off his business to somebody else for four months, and then when he comes back. That guy doesn't want to give it up. Oh, those can lead to even better games. Now it's personal. Give me back my company. Even if you know you're going to have to give it off to someone again in a little while. Let's think of it from the perspective of Fringeworthy. If Baroden sees him having a small hairy conniption fit in the corner because someone just walked off with three quarters of his assets. Yeah, congratulations. You got three weeks of leave. Try not to do anything that has us trying to bail you out of jail. Also looking from the GM's point of view, okay, the character's going to be gone for four months. Do you really want to screw over the character? Or do you want, or you just want to inconvenience the character? I, I would actually go with inconvenience the character. Well, I'm not sure what you mean by screw over the character, John. It's four months. He comes back and he finds out he's only worth now what he's got in his pockets. I yeah. really, yeah. really feel that the true mm-hmm. joy of having any kind of character is that... Yes, you could theoretically lose it all tomorrow, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it would be just as easy for you to get it back, yeah. or at least it's possible for you to get it back without having the entire party wanting to walk out and leave on you. I have no problem with that as long as the character has some, some means of actually affecting that outcome. When he's gone for four months, it would feel too much as a screw over to me. They haven't become, suddenly become broke. Unless he's done some sort of action beforehand, they would warrant it happening. One of the possibilities on controlling the character is cutting him off. If you're talking about this self-made man, he owns his own money, you're taking his money away from him, then you run the risk of running against the very thing that makes his character interesting. You know, the resources he has. On the other hand, if he's rich because his family is rich and he hasn't been fulfilling his obligations and so they cut him off, well, okay, that's character development. That's part of his character concept. It's still okay. Because he could still theoretically get everything back once he makes good with the family. Yeah. What I was proposing more or less is, is a warning to GMs. Because some GMs may not think it through and decide, oh, screw this guy over and he, he's no longer rich. Uh, no. There's got to be reasons, be ways for the character to be able to at least affect that outcome. If you just do it, Without any way for him to affect the outcome, that's screwing the player and the character over. And that's okay as long as the player is okay with that. The player might want to have his character go through that kind of a change. One of the biggest reasons I can see for doing that is the very thing that you've been talking about, Eric, in that a character who is rich is more than just the sum of their money. It's also their bearing, their personal view of themselves, the way they carry themselves, in that if I'm rich and so therefore I go to another world and I act like a rich guy, even though I actually don't have a single cent of my name on that world, but I know how to act like a rich guy. And everyone will recognize that. Well, you take away his money, he has an opportunity now to really do that. Because before that, he always has to fall back. Well, I'll just pull out my wallet and I'll just do this. But no, now he has to fall back on, I am a rich guy and this is the way I'm going to conduct myself because I am who I am. And I can see that as a very good reason to do that. But as long as the player has buy-off on it. If, oh. you know, this is what I'm saying. Some GMs don't get the buy-off first before they do it. Uh, you know, I understand that. You have to be very careful in all cases that you don't violate 
the very reason why the player is playing the character. Thank you for someone else saying it. I didn't want to get, you know, I didn't want to sound like I was doing the entire show. You had the same situation where you take away somebody's magical ability if they're a mage. If you take away someone's psionics, okay? If you make a martial artist a paraplegic for a while and stick him in a chair, he's got really good secondary computer skills and he can sit there in the RV and still run all the ops and things like that. He could be a Professor X. But if that character wanted to be a martial artist more than anything else, then that's not going to work. One of the other options is is that if he's a really good martial artist, you put him in a wheelchair, congratulations. A, I still wouldn't want to mess with him because of what he could do with the other two limbs. And B, congratulations, he's running his own dojo now. He's teaching other people how to be martial artists at the same time if there's a way for him to figure out how to not be stuck in this chair. Or take advantage of that chair and create, and create wheelchair foo. Yes. He's not going to stop being a martial artist in his head. That's what he should do. That's how he should respond to these kinds of challenges. And that's, again, where the buy-in comes with the player. Yeah. Before someone tries to play a character like this, that you should bounce it off the GM because... If you're the ultra-rich guy and 80% of this is going to be in the darkest safari of Africa, not terribly fun. Yeah. If the entire party is trying to set up a mood of the homeless or semi-indigent of uh, New York City and you want to be the ultra-rich guy, again, may not you know, feel too good uh, in the party. If you work with the GM mm -hmm. and it's going to work in the campaign setting, it's going to work with the players, at least to an extent, and the GM doesn't have a problem with it, and you don't have a problem with that setting, then the GM checking up every once in a while, it's like, well, okay, if I do X, will you, like, leave the game? And as long as they're, like, willing to, to run with what, however you're going to throw these curves at the party, yeah. and specifically at you, that's not what I call oppression. That's what I call fun, because as long as you're able to do something that is not altering the kernel of who you are, okay, I may not be a rich person anymore, but I have a certain sense of self-worth that, regardless of what my bank statement says, you cannot take away from me. Yeah. I have a certain skill set that, regardless of what you do to me, I am not going to violate. It's who I am core fiber of your being, so yeah. to speak. Rob has seen this in me a lot. Boy, he's seen me this in me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's like, and now we'll take the, the, the game on a left turn to Albuquerque. And I'm going, the sign says right turn, Clyde. Not a... <laughs> <laughs> this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Eric. It's all about having fun with friends. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker. You best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, 
we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.